You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. There is still so much confusion in our world today about who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. We will explore this call of discipleship from our text today and see the contrast of discipleship with worldly living. We are of a different way. We are followers of Christ, not followers of the world systems. Turn with us in Mark chapter 8 verse 34 through chapter 9 verse 1 as the pastor delivers the sermon, Real Discipleship. All right, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin our reading in verse number 34 this morning. You know, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of the nations, and we're going to try to deal with that a little bit more uh, even next week. But what is real discipleship? Now, this idea of discipleship has been distorted by how we use the term discipleship. It's become associated with the various methods to achieve that objective of being a disciple. Some think it's that Sunday class that we have on a, on a Sunday evening before a worship service. So some churches have termed that class discipleship training. And so in some people's minds, that's what discipleship is. Some people think that discipleship is donning your man bun, grabbing a latte, dropping your kids off to be entertained while you yourself are entertained in a large group. Or maybe you sit down in a coffee shop around a table with a few other guys and in their minds and in those churches, that's what discipleship is. Now the church has tried many different methods in order to achieve this objective of making disciples. But I fear that we have yet to grasp what it truly means to come after Jesus as a disciple. So that's what we want to get into today to understand the real meaning of what discipleship actually is. What is real discipleship? Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Now we'll go down through chapter 9 and verse 1. But most of verse 38 And then uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, we're going to address next week. But it really should be included together. As you understand, man kind of came along later and put these chapter divisions and things and verse divisions to make it easy for us to reference and find. Really should not be a a division between 38, um, the last verse of chapter 8, and the first verse of chapter 9. So that's why we're going to read all the way through chapter 9, verse 1. But again, we'll, we'll talk about verse 38 a little more in depth along with chapter 9, verse 1 next week. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? And lose his own soul? 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Verily I say unto you, There be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. God, this morning, I pray you would open your word to us. Father, this is a passage that I know that I could never bring justice to this passage. I could never expound or preach um, to its fullest, nor can I in my power change hearts. But God, I pray that somehow you would use this time to um, speak your truth, to minister your gospel to us today, to help us to understand what real discipleship is, and to call us to a deeper place in our walk with you. Challenge our assumptions this morning. Encourage us today. Strengthen us for the life that you've called us to live. Lord, may you be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're coming off the heels of the healing of a blind man. We talked about that, that perfect vision last week. And as Jesus healed that blind man, remember he was also further instructing his disciples. And he was giving them further revelation about who he was. And now he's going a little bit further with also how to, to follow after him. They needed to understand who Christ was, but they also need to understand what it meant to actually follow him. And he's just told his disciples that the son of man has got to endure some suffering. There's some hardship that he's going to go through. He's going to be rejected by the people. He's going to go to the cross. But then he tells his disciples what it means to follow him, that they too must follow in that path of suffering and they too must take up their cross. And so Jesus is explaining to them what it truly means to follow after him. There's still much confusion, even now, some 2,000 years later in our world, about just who Jesus really is and what it really means to follow after him. So we're going to explore this call of discipleship from our text today, and we're going to see the contrast of discipleship with that of worldly living. Now, what is discipleship if we were just to define it? To be a disciple literally means to be a learner or an imitator or a follower of someone. And what is the call that Jesus has to his disciples in this verse? Look at verse 34 again. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he called the crowds of people to himself. Along with that were the disciples. 
And he tells them, if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a follower of me, an imitator of me, a learner of me, this is what it means. And he goes on to define what it means to be his follower, what it means to be a disciple. So let's look at this call that Jesus issued to them first for discipleship. A call to discipleship is a call, first of all, to deny self. When he called the people to him, his disciples also, he said to them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. We find ourselves here in the United States in our Western culture, very much in the midst of a self-absorbed culture, don't we? Everybody is concerned with themselves. That's what sells books and tapes and seminars and conferences too, right? Because everybody is concerned about themselves, how you can be a better you, how you can have more, how you can achieve more, how you can be satisfied, how you can be successful, how you can feel fulfilled, right? And so the concern is, what can I get? Because it's about me. That is the culture of the world. It is self-absorbed. And we bring that even to our approach to, quote, religion, worship, or even somehow achieving heaven one day. We're very self-centered, self-absorbed in that effort. And somehow we think perhaps that we can achieve it ourselves, We can gain it ourselves, And the reality is there's absolutely nothing I can do to achieve my own salvation. Only the work of Christ can save me. And so for me to think that I can do anything is to totally miss the mark. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to understand what discipleship means. And to be my disciple, to be my follower, means that you must deny yourself. Now, if being a disciple of Christ is being an imitator of him or a follower of him, how did Jesus show us this example of denying self? Remember, this is God himself who stepped down from the throne of glory and took upon himself human flesh and became like we are. That's not denying self. I don't know what is. That the king of glory would endure the abuse and suffering and pain that he did in this life. He denied himself. To remain upon the cross when he had the power to simply come down. And yet he did not. Again and again, our Christ set that example for us, didn't he? Of what a life looks like denying self. The gospel demands that we deny ourselves. Now this conflicts with this easy gospel that's being preached these days. This toned down gospel because we want to attract more people. We want to draw in the crowds. The problem is when we tone down the gospel to attract the crowds, we're not preaching the true gospel at all. It has no power to transform. No power to save. We tell people, you just come on like you are with no expectation of a change. That you don't have to deny yourself. You can just be who you feel like you are. You can just live how you 
feel like you want to live and somehow mix a little bit of Christ in with that or a little bit of church in with that or a little bit of worship in with that. That's not the kind of gospel that Jesus preached. Jesus preached a gospel that requires a denial of self. Jesus says not only must you deny self if you're going to be my disciple, but notice the next thing in verse 34. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. And secondly, take up his cross. Now, Luke adds an additional word here. He says to take up your cross daily. And that's the indication that Jesus is making. This taking up a cross as a disciple of Jesus Christ is a daily thing, a day in and day out thing. Daily we take up our cross as we follow him. Now remember, Jesus has just told us that he had to be killed back in verse 31. That he's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was already looking forward to the cross that he would bear, literally that he would die upon that cross. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, then you got to take up your cross. Now in this day, understand this was a common form of Roman execution. This was common punishment in that day. The Romans would put people to death on a cross. And if you were condemned to die on that cross, part of your sentence was that you carried that portion of cross upon yourself to your own execution. Now, we see pictures of what we think crosses look like, but if you could imagine in that day, more or less a pole that's already fixed and in place, and you can imagine a large beam that a person could carry on their shoulders, and when they got to that cross, that beam could be hefted up and put on that pole, and they would hang on that cross. But that big beam that would go across there would be carried by the person who was sentenced to die. You remember Christ himself carried his own cross, right? At least for a portion of time. And this is after the beatings that he's endured, beatings that many men never survived. And so Christ, after taking the beatings, his flesh totally exposed, he carries his cross. And he says, if you're going to follow me, understand you're going to have to carry a cross daily. Now, how many of you think this is a popular message? If you're trying to win a big crowd of people, do you think that this is the message that you would use? Would you go out if you want a big following of people, if you want a whole bunch of people to make it into heaven? Would you go out and say, hey, guys, I've got some good news for you. If you'll deny yourself and if you'll carry a cross and you're willing to suffer and you're willing to forsake this world, you're willing to forsake your lifestyle, you're willing to forsake your sin and come to Christ. Oh, and by the way, this is not a one-time thing. Once you do this and once you come to him, you're going to suffer daily. You're going to carry that cross daily. How many things that you're going to have people lining up to hear that message? Which is why that message isn't being preached either. But this is the truth, isn't it? 
But we're going to see the contrast in just a minute. There's a paradox here. And we're going to see that as the passage goes on because it doesn't seem to make sense in our mind. Why would anyone want to take this on? Why would anyone desire a life that's going to require suffering or bearing a cross? Why would anyone want to do that? Why would they not choose a life of ease? Why choose a life of hardship and suffering? Well, notice as we look at verse 34, Jesus said this call to discipleship was a call to deny yourself. It was a call to take up your cross. But then the last part of that, he says, and follow me. Follow me. Who is setting the roadmap here for the life of the disciple? It's Christ. He's saying, you're not going to follow the path the world lays out for you. You're not going to follow the path that everybody else is going down. You're going to follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you follow me. Understand that's what a disciple of that time would do, right? If a person wanted to be instructed and taught and learn from someone, they would go to that teacher and they would request to be a follower of that teacher. And they would go with them and they would serve them. And they would help them and do anything they could for that teacher so they could listen and absorb and learn from them. Yet we've seen through Mark, Jesus did things differently, didn't he? Jesus was the one who actually called those who would follow him. And so Jesus called his disciples to himself. But look at the life that he called them to. He said, I'm calling you to a life of denying yourself, of taking up your cross. That's what it means if you're going to follow after me. And if you desire to follow me, understand this is what it's going to require. This is what real discipleship is going to be about. That's the call to discipleship. But notice as we go to verse 35, we're going to see some contrast now. Contrasting what being a disciple of Christ is versus what life in the world is. The way a disciple thinks versus how the world thinks. In verse 35, the first idea is you could save your life or lose it. He says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So we're talking about losing and gaining here, saving or losing. Now, if you put your funds in a savings account, why do you put your funds in a savings account? Because you don't want to lose your funds, right? You're trying to to keep them. You're trying to hang on to it. You're saving it for some other purpose, some other day. And Jesus is contrasting the idea of saving our life versus losing our life. Some think if I come after Christ, if I follow him, I'm going to lose my life. Guess what? You are. You lose this life. But what do you gain? You lose this life, but yet you gain eternal life. 
You see the exchange? And we're going to see that in the next verse as well. So this idea of hanging on to my life, the way I want to live, the way I want to be, the things I want to do, I want to hang on to all of these things in the world. I want to hang on to me. I don't want to deny self. I don't want to let go of self. I want to hang on to it. Then you continue to save it, continue to hang on to it. But guess what? In the end, you're going to lose it. That thing that you fought so hard to keep is going to elude you one day. You will have it no more. He said, whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever shall lose his life for what? What would you be losing your life for? He says, for my sake and the gospels. The person who loses their life for my sake, the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel, that's the same person who will truly save their life in the end. For Christ's sake. For his gospel's sake. What is the gospel? That, that good news of Christ, right? The good news of transformation that comes only through him. And if we're willing to lose this life, then we'll gain true life. So the contrast is saving life or losing life. But notice that the next one that we see in verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You see, there's many, there are many Christians who are still more worried about their image. They're still more worried about their acceptance in this world than they are the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. James says in James 4.4, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's pretty strong and plain, isn't it? To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. I don't think we hear that preached a lot, do we? And yet it's truth. If you look at the prior verse in James 4, verse 3, he talks about how that we have not because we ask not, but then when we ask, we ask amiss that we can do what with those things? That we can absorb them on our own pleasures. See? Self-absorption. It's about me. It's about my pleasure, my satisfaction, my feeling good in this life. In the temporary, the, the comforts of the world. But if we seek after the comforts of the world, if we seek after the pleasures of this world, then we are nothing but enemies of God. What do we seek? What do we seek to gain? And why do we seek to gain it? What did Jesus tell us to seek? But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he says, all these things will be added to you. But the world does it backwards, don't they? And so we find ourselves being absorbed day in and day out with trying to achieve the things of the world. Whether it's to meet our basic needs or to pad our bank account or to gain some kind of prestige in this life. We find ourselves striving day in and day out for what and why? When Christ says, you seek me first. You seek righteousness 
first. Jesus uses some terms in verse 36, some financial terms. He talks about profit and loss. And then he talks about verse 37, exchange. Look at it again, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? Now, that seems like a pretty good return, doesn't it? If you're trying to look for some profit, if you're trying to look for a return on your money or your investment, imagine gaining the whole world. That seems like a pretty good return, doesn't it? Except that, what if you do that? What if you achieve that? What if you can gain the whole world? But, he says, and lose his own soul. Was that a good investment? You gained the whole world, but you lost your soul. In fact, he uses that term soul again in verse 37. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So the word exchange, again, you see this, this financial idea. It's whether we use currency or cryptocurrency or barter. Or whatever form it may be, we have these methods of exchange, right? I give you this in return, you give me that. And that's how the financial systems work. We have some form of exchange or medium of exchange, whatever that might be. And in this case, what are you exchanging? What, what's the currency here? What you're bartering with is your soul. And you're saying, I want the world... In exchange for that, I'll just lose my soul. Does that sound like a good exchange? Or I can give up the world and gain my soul. Now see, there's the question, isn't it? Our soul is that part of us which is eternal. It never dies. Listen, this life that we live in the flesh is temporary. Some of you might live into your 90s or 100s or who knows. You might make it over 100. But you know what? In light of eternity, 100 is very small, isn't it? That's temporal. And so you gain everything in this world for that 100 years. But that soul suffers torment and loss for eternity. Wasn't a good exchange, was it? Wasn't a good exchange. What did you profit? You thought you were gaining. You see, it seems like a big investment, doesn't it? It seems like a lot of upfront cost to give up this world. To give up the pleasures of this world. To give up this life. To give up myself now. Man, that seems like a high upfront cost. (laughs) But what are the returns over eternity? Jesus told us to lay not up for ourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. It's temporary. But look at verse 38. There's this contrasting of saving our life and losing it, gaining the world or losing our soul. But then he talks about verse 38 about being ashamed of Christ now or him being ashamed of us later. Verse 38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, what I want to get into next week is talking about this coming and what Jesus is referring to and then, and then the power of his kingdom that we see in chapter 9, verse 1. So I'm going to save some of the details of that for next time. But the point of this is, Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of me now, There'll come a day where I'll be ashamed of you also. I won't claim you. He told us, whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father, which is in heaven. Matthew 10, 13. So Jesus talks about us being ashamed of what? Look at verse 38. What's the thing that we run the risk of being ashamed of? The things that we can't be ashamed of if we're going to be a disciple of Christ. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words. This is why we don't preach the real Christ. We're ashamed of the real Christ. So we've made him in a different Christ. We're ashamed of his words. So we twisted and perverted his word. And understand Jesus's word, by the way, is not just those few things that are recorded in the Gospels that he said while he walked on this earth. It is the totality of Scripture. It is all Christ's Word. From the beginning to the end. And we'll talk about this more again next week when we get in further into that great commission where we're to go and make disciples of the nations. And what does he say to do? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Again, it wasn't just those few things contained in the Gospels. It was all of Scripture. You teach those things. You teach the whole counsel of God. You teach the whole word. I promise you the world doesn't like it when you preach the whole world. Uh, the whole word. I promise you they don't like it. They will come against you. They will shame you. But Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, who I really am, my person, and you're ashamed of my words, the person and work of Christ. And notice where he says that we'd be ashamed of it. In this adulterous and sinful generation. You know whose approval we're after? When we're ashamed of Christ and we're ashamed of his words, we are seeking the approval of an adulterous and sinful generation. Think about that. We're saying it is more important to me what these sinners, what this adulterous generation, what this world that's headed to hell I'm more concerned about what this world headed to hell thinks about me and whether they accept me or not I'm more worried about that than I am about the approval of the one who gave himself for me who redeemed me who bought me with his blood the one who preserves my soul for eternity I don't want to claim him I just want to be accepted by this hell-bound world. Do you think you would ever say something like that out loud? (laughs) We would never think of uttering such words. And yet, in practice, 
in our life, we're demonstrating that's exactly what we feel. That's exactly what we think and what we believe. It's an adulterous, sinful generation. Sinful, that's an important term. Because there is absolute right and there is absolute wrong. There is a such thing as sin. And the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why we stand in need of redemption. That's why the world is in need of the Savior. We, however, are not to be an adulterous and sinful generation. He's bought us out of that. We're to be a distinct and peculiar people. But Jesus says, if we're going to be ashamed of him and his words amongst that group, that crowd, amongst this world, then that says plenty about who we really are. We're not real disciples. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will be ashamed of us. We have a mandate to disciple the nations. But the church must repent because we're not being examples of real discipleship. If we're not distinct and unique, what in the world do we have to offer to the world? What do we have to offer if there is no distinction, if there is no difference? You see, when their way crumbles, we must be standing uniquely different with the answer. It's time for us to come out from among them and be separate. We can begin by God's grace to redeem the time and bring salvation to this world. But we won't do it by succumbing to the world's way. We are of a different way, aren't we? We are followers of Christ, not followers of the world system. It may seem easier to go along and get along. It may seem easier just to blend in and be accepted. But the world will never be receptive of a true disciple. That is a losing game. If you are a true disciple, you will be hated by the world. If you're a real disciple, you'll be okay with that. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.